This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Great to be with you once again. This week, we're talking about time. The philosophy of time is one of those wonderful areas of thought that you can go into at one end with a bunch of normal, everyday preconceptions about how the world works, and then come out the other side questioning everything you thought you ever knew. Because time is one of those very familiar things. We all experience its passing. We all know how we think it works, which is to say that time is a bit like a river. There's the future up ahead in the distance, and it's flowing towards us. It finally gets here, and events occur in the present, at which point the flow of time immediately immediately carries them off into the past. And if you think about time this way, then you are an adherent to what philosophers call the A-theory of time. The A-theory positing simply that time passes, it's dynamic, it moves along. And it also privileges the present moment in that the present is more real, if you like, than the future or the past. But the A-theory, as its name coincidentally suggests, is only a theory of time. It's not the theory of time, and it has competitors, one of which is unexcitingly called the B-theory of time. According to the B-theory, past, present and future events all still exist, but they don't flow along. One doesn't morph into another. The past, present and future are all equally real, and there's no privileged present moment. So, if your head is spinning at this point, that's fair enough. But everything is going to be explained further over the next half hour, and fortunately my guest this week is an excellent explainer. Her name is Heather Dyke, and she's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Otago in New Zealand. The A theory is, I guess, it claims to be the theory of common sense. It's the one that most closely matches our pre-theoretic thinking about time, in as much as we have any pre-theoretic thinking about time. Um, So broadly speaking, the A theory adheres to two metaphysical claims about the nature of time. One is that um, there is an objective, mind-independent distinction between past, present and future. So there's a sense in which the present is somehow metaphysically privileged and ontologically distinct from the past and the future. I'll just jump in there. Sorry, this phrase metaphysically privileged interests me. In in what sense is the present privileged according to the A-theory? So different versions of the A-theory will cash that out in different ways. Um, So one view which is widely held among A-theorists is uh, known as presentism. Um, So according to presentism, only the present exists. If anything exists, it's present. <laughs> if anything is present, it exists. That the, the present exhausts existence. So that's a clear sense in which the present is metaphysically privileged. It's the sum total of existence. Another version is what's known as the growing block theory. So the growing block theory says that the past and the present exist, and the passage of time consists in the continual adding to the block of of past and present. So in that sense, the present is metaphysically privileged um, by being the kind of at the cutting edge of reality, you might say, or um, the only moment that has no subsequent moments. Another version of the A theory um, is known as the moving spotlight theory. So this, according to this view, you have like past, present and future are all kind of laid out, as it were, in the same sense that the B-theory thinks they are, but where this view differs from the B-theory is in terms of there being, the, the, the present moment is kind of privileged by being picked out by the spotlight of presentness, if you like. So the moments are all sort of laid out there, but one of them is, and this is not merely a kind of um, observer dependence, it's not merely kind of relative to any observer, it's 
mind independently picked out as the objectively present moment. So as I say, there are different ways of cashing that out, but atheists all have some story about how the present is somehow, you know, more important than the past or the future, whether that's in terms of existence or, or some other kind of metaphysical privilege. Right. And you mentioned that according to the A theory, time is is dynamic and that this conforms to our common sense view of time. Just tell me, explain that a little bit. Yeah. So the first claim that there's this objective distinction between past, present and future. But but if we if that's all we said, if we just said, right, there's an objective distinction between past, present and future, that doesn't adequately capture what we ordinarily think about time, because that would create an image of a kind of frozen static world where um, the present moment is kind of privileged. But the moment that is present is sort of forever present. Well, that's not how we experience time. We experience time as being dynamic. as Well, there are sort of two ways of thinking about it. Either we're occupying the present and we're sort of moving towards the future and away from the past, or we think of ourselves as being kind of static and future events kind of rolling towards us, becoming present momentarily and then fading away off into the past. So that's the other element of our kind of pre-theoretic experience of time that the A theory wants to capture. So there's there's an objective distinction between past, present and future. And there's a sense in which time itself is essentially dynamic. And we occupy this kind of common shared present moment and experience this kind of this temporal flow or temporal passage. I wonder if the fact that it's a common sense view of time has something to do with the fact that we have a language which makes it very easy for us to describe time in that way. You know, in English, we have past, present, future verb tenses. Like, it's like, I wonder if there's a sort of a theory temporality that's been built into our language and and that that to some extent creates a certain perspective on temporality or, or is it more a reflection of the way that we think we perceive time? Yeah, I mean, it could be either. Um, you know, when we're talking about this, we're just talking about English, right? And and lots of languages have lots of different ways of marking out um, tenses. But all languages have some means of identifying temporal locations in terms of their relation to um, the present or the you know the moment at which you're speaking, if you like. And we need that in order to be able to kind of successfully navigate our way th- through the world. Um, we need to be able to represent events in the world, events that are coming up, um, events that have already happened um, in some kind of essentially tensed way in terms of its relation to us when we're talking about it, in order to be able to successfully navigate our way through the world. If we only had tenseless beliefs, we would never show up on time to our meetings. If I only had the belief that the appointment was at, you know, at noon on Thursday that in itself is not going to make me turn up on time. I have to know what time it is now in order to sort of successfully turn up to the meeting. There has to be a relationship there between the two times, if you like. Absolutely, exactly. That's right. That's right. But to go back to your question of of whether this is a sort of an influence, um, there is some really interesting work being done by linguists and cognitive scientists and psychologists on this matter. And they have found that the language you speak as a first language does influence the way you think about things, not just time, you know, things in general. And we think about time using spatial metaphors. We talk about how long it's been since. That's, you know, where length is a kind of spatial term. Or we talk about how much time has passed, where that's a kind of quantity 
term. So, and different languages have used different spatial metaphors or prioritised different spatial metaphors. Um, so in English, we often talk about distance. We talk of temporal duration in terms of a distance, whereas other languages, I think Spanish, talks of it in terms of quantity. So, you know, you, you have much time or, or less time, whereas we have, you know, sort of longer or shorter durations. And that can affect how you think about time. Mandarin, where, you know, we tend to think about time in terms of, you know, the future is maybe in front of us or and the past behind us, or perhaps the past is to the left and the future is to the right. And that may align with how, we, you know, how we read. We read from left to right. Um, in Mandarin, um, the past is above us and the future is below us. And you can tell by, you know, sort of examining people's hand movements when they talk that, you know, they, they tend to kind of indicate up for before or for the past and down for the future. Um, so, yeah, there is some kind of influencing from the language you speak to how you think about time. Um, there's no evidence to think that it's completely determining the way we think about time, but there's definitely some influence that goes on. Yeah, mm, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Let's turn to the B theory of time, um, which is also quite fascinating. It runs counter to our the, the way that we think we perceive time on, on an everyday sort of level. What does a B theorist claim about the way time works? So I mentioned the two kind of central claims of the atheist, that there's an objective distinction between past, present and future, and time is dynamic or time flows with respect to that distinction. The B-theory simply denies both of those. It says there is no objective, no mind-independent distinction between past, present and future. Insofar as an event is happening now, that's sort of relational in the sense that I was talking about before. Um, it's just happening at the same time as which as that I'm talking about it. Uh, past events are just those that happen earlier than my ref my referencing them or my talking about them, and future events are those um, that happen later. So the sense in which we have this notion of past, present, and future, these tensed notions, these are all kind of explained in terms of relational features, relations between observers and the events that they're talking about. But it also denies that time flows, that there's any sense in which time is dynamic. And that one may seem a little harder to explain or explain away, and that's something that there's quite a bit of work being done in philosophy of time at the moment on on that issue, trying to explain or account for the sense in which we seem to experience the passage of time um, in terms that don't require any robust passage of time from future to present to past. Well, hmm. let, let me try a little experiment here. I, I have a, a set of keys here and I'm I'm going to drop them on the floor in about five seconds' time. So I, I have announced my intention to drop the keys, which means it's an event in the future. Now I'm dropping them. There they go. And from that brief present instance of the keys dropping, they are now on the floor and we say that the keys have dropped. It's a past event. So can you explain what just happened there in B theoretical terms? Because the way I just talked us through the experiment was a, a very sort of A theory framing, wasn't it? Yeah. So you, you yeah, you you were talking about it in terms of the the tenses. Yeah. So you so before before the event, you were talking about it in future tense terms, during the event in present tense terms, and after the event in past tense terms. Um for the B theorist, that's, you know, what the tenses reflect is your perspective on that event. So at times before the event, from your perspective, the event is later than your utterance. And so that's why it's a future tense utterance. But 
all that's needed to make that future tense utterance true is the fact that the event it's about tenselessly occurs later than the time at which you you utter your future tense utterance. During the event, um, the event is simultaneous with your utterance. So that simultaneity is what makes true your present tense utterance, the keys are now dropping. And then from later... You express that the event happened, it's now past. What makes that true um, is the fact that the event occurs tenselessly earlier than your past tense description of it. So, um, in other words, what the, what the B theorist says is that, yes, we have tenses embedded in our language, and that's how we describe the world, and indeed that's how we must describe the world. But all that's needed to make any tense utterance true is some tenseless relational fact about the relation between your perspective and the event that you're talking about. And none of that, those relational facts never change. So it's always the case that at T naught, your utterance is earlier than the, the event of the keys dropping. And at T1, your utterance is at the same time as or simultaneous with the keys dropping. And at T2, the event is earlier than your past tense description of the keys dropping. So those relational facts are kind of static. They don't change. There's no dynamism there. But they are all you need uh, to account for or to provide truth conditions for um, those tensed utterances. Right. So as you say, there is a, a temporal relationship between, say, the three times, the time before I drop the keys, the moment at which I drop the keys, and then the moment after the dropping. Uh, but it's not like I could... I couldn't just sort of reshuffle them. I couldn't make the, the the dropping of the keys happen before the intention to drop the keys, if you like. So they maintain that relationship to each other, but it's the experience of passage, of all that happening as a kind of a flow that B-theory says is not real, if you like. Or at least, well, they have to try and provide alternative explanations for that, yeah. It, it, insofar as they accept that we do have that experience, um, they, they need to provide a, a non-atheoretic explanation of it, yeah. I can see that the A-theory has inherent plausibility in that it reflects or, or fits well with, as you say, our, our common sense beliefs about time and what seems to be our experience of time. The B-theory doesn't do that, but it does fit better... I understand, with scientific thinking about time. What's the scientific thinking there? Okay, so according to the special theory of relativity, there's no such thing in the world as absolute simultaneity. That's the real kind of clincher. That's the, that's the problem for the A-theory. Um, there's no such thing as absolute simultaneity. So therefore, there's no such thing as absolute presentness. Um, it seems, I mean, I can, Einstein uses a simple thought experiment to illustrate this, so um, which I could run through briefly if that helps. Sure, yeah. Um, okay, so he, he imagines, um, imagine someone on a train passing through a station and then someone standing on the platform um, and there are two lightning strikes, one off in the distance ahead of the train and one off in the distance behind the train. The person on the platform sees both lightning flashes at the same time and because you know, light has a constant velocity, that person assumes or infers that the two flashes happen at the same time. For the person on the train, because the train is moving towards one flash and away from the other, that person will see the, the flash ahead before the flash behind. So given the constant speed of light, that person will infer that the flash in the um, upper head occurs before the flash behind. Right. So they uh, draw different conclusions about whether these events are simultaneous or whether one happens before the other. So who's right? You might think, well, the person on the platform is not moving, so that person's right. 
But what we know from science, even before Einstein, is that there's no such thing as absolute rest. So that means that we have no way, no observer-independent, no frame-independent way of determining whether two events are simultaneous or not. You know, A happens before B, and relative to another frame of reference, B happens before A. And there's just no, there is no way of kind of establishing, there is no fact, there just is no fact of the matter. So for the A theory, this is a big problem, because um, especially if you're a presentist, and you want to uh, say that everything that's present exists, or only what is present exists, because you have no way of determining everything that is present relative to me here now, if you like. Um, other people with op- occupying other spatio-temporal locations and, and frames of reference are going to give different answers to what's present, and thereby they're going to give different answers to what's real. So reality itself becomes a, a relative matter, a frame-relative matter. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is a philosopher of time, Heather Dyke from the University of Otago in New Zealand. One thing that I'm thinking about with respect to the B theory of time is that it's quite counterintuitive, or at least it probably is for most people who feel that time passing, time flowing is just part of reality. And I wonder if, as a B theorist yourself, you find it strange that we have this almost universally held common sense view of time that is so inconsistent with what you see as temporal reality. Like, how does a B theorist respond to someone who says, if almost everyone from the day they're born has this experience of the passage of time, the flow of time, then that passage of time must, in some sense, constitute an objective feature of reality. You can't just dismiss the temporal phenomenology. It has to count for something. There's lots of work going on at the moment on this. Um, Absolutely, that's the challenge. That's the challenge for the B theory. Yep, the theory fits well with what the science tells us, but it seems to to not fit at all with what first-person experience seems to tell us. So there needs to be some kind of reconciliation at that end of things, if you like. So yeah, I think at the moment there are some philosophers who will, some B theorists who will say, yeah, we do have this phenomenology, we do have this experience, but it's just illusory. It's not representing how things are. So we're sort of under some kind of widespread mass illusion. Um, And actually for that very reason, I'm not taken with that particular explanation. I think, I think it's, I think if it is an illusion, it's not like other illusions, because other illusions, we can see how things really are, you know, like if you see a, a bent stick in water, that's an illusion because the stick isn't really bent. And so you can remove the stick from the water and now you see it's not really bent. Whereas we don't seem to be able to escape from the illusion of passage, if that's what it is. And why would we have evolved to have this illusory um, kind of take on the world, experience of the world? It's puzzling. I think it raises further questions. So the alternative view is a view that's it's acquiring different labels, but a label that, I, that I've adopted for it is deflationism, um, which is to say that what's really going on when you say you're experiencing the flow of time 
you know, look at some examples in the literature and you'll see people saying, well, you know, you see the second hand moving around the clock. You see the sands falling through the hourglass. Your thoughts kind of succeed one another in your head. But all of these descriptions are describing change that's going on in the world. It's not really time itself that's moving there. It's change. It's objects, events that, you know, the, the contents of the world, the contents of space-time. And you're experiencing them in this kind of flowy way. It's likely that there are good explanations of why we experience um, change in this kind of smooth and continuous flowy way. But all that's being experienced is succession, one thing after another, one one event after another. And so that, so I, I call that deflationism, or it's being called deflationism, because it's deflating this this sense of robust passage. You know, the passage that time itself is rolling past. You know, that that um, that the future is approaching us, or we're approaching the future. If you really think about what's going on when you think that time itself is dynamic, and you try and pinpoint it. I don't think you would be able to pick out anything more than just ordinary change. I was uh, watching a lecture that you gave in, in 2017. I'll put a link to that on our website, where you were talking about what to me is a really interesting phenomenon. It, it's this idea or the, the sense that we sometimes have of time either slowing down in, in certain critical situations or speeding up. And I'm interested in the speeding up one because I'm of a certain age where Time seems to be going incredibly, terrifyingly fast these days. But there's also that weird phenomenon where you can be travelling to a new place and it seems to take a certain length of time, but then when you travel back again, it seems to take a much shorter time, even though the distance is the same. What do these phenomena suggest? Right. This is something that I I really enjoy talking about um, because we do all have these experiences, I think. We certainly, like the return journey paradox um, is a well-known phenomenon. And we certainly do, I think, you know, we can recall those long childhood summer holidays that seem to just go on forever. But now, as you say, you know, you reach a certain age and it seems to zip by. And of course, our experiences of time during lockdown, during the pandemic, went completely haywire. My own view of this is I draw on some work by the psychologist Alison Gopnik, um, who wrote a wonderful book called The Philosophical Baby. Alison Gopnik calls babies the, the research and development arm of the human species, um, and adults are sales and marketing, which I which I which I really like. <laughs> yeah. So, so, the, um, and she says babies and young children pay attention to the world in a kind of, they, she calls it lantern attention because they're just kind of taking in everything, their, their attention being t- sort of taken away by, by external events. Um, whereas as we get older, we employ much more commonly what she calls spotlight attention. And that's where we're just focused on one thing and our focus is kind of driven by our plans, you know, and our goals. Now, we can experience, adult, as adults, as kind of, you know, crusty old adults, we can experience um, lantern attention. And, and we do very often when we experience novel situations. So if you go on holiday to a new place, for example, you'll be taking in everything around you, you know, in the same way that a baby does all the time. Um, but when you're sort of at work and just kind of, you know, on the same old regular treadmill, you're focused on the tasks that you've got to do. You're not taking, you know... Babies are no good at filtering out external distractions. We're really good at it. We can concentrate on what we're doing. Um, but as I say, we can experience this sort of lantern um, attention as well. So my sort of hypothesis about this is that when you experience the world in this kind of lantern way, you're taking in a lot more data. You're processing a lot more information. 
So then when you look back on a period of time in which you were experiencing the world in this way, your memories are going to be chock full of data, really kind of um, intense experiences. And there is some evidence that we judge how long a period of time is in terms of how many kind of discrete events there are in it. So if you experience a two-week holiday where those two weeks are kind of jam-packed with novel experiences, you're going to look back on it and think it lasted way longer than just two weeks. Whereas if you're in this kind of spotlight mode um, and you're just, you know, you're on your treadmill and every day is the same, then your memories are going to be kind of comparatively impoverished. So when you look back, you're going to go, wow, that year since I took on this new job or whatever, this year's just flown by. Because your your memories are kind of, you know, have comparatively less data in them. Um, so I think there's a sense in which we judge how fast, I'm in scare quotes, time seems to be passing while it's going on. I mean, that very often, if we think time is dragging, we'll make that judgment at the time. So if you're in a boring lecture or, you know, or waiting for a bus or something, you'll, you'll think that time is dragging. But the experience of time passing by quickly seems to be done sort of retrospectively because our attention is fully sort of engaged when we're experiencing the world in this kind of lantern way. The role of memory here is really interesting. I mean, is what you're saying, and this is to maybe we'll use the um, the uh, example of driving somewhere that you haven't driven before and then driving home again, the outward journey seems to take longer than the return journey. Are you saying that it's really the memory of the outward journey that seems to have more events in it, more data, and that's why it seemed to be a longer journey? The the, the memory is really doing more work there than the actual experience of the outward journey while you're having it. That's right. Uh, That's what I think, yeah. So I think that um, because it's a new journey, you've you've never done it before and you need to, you know, you don't know where you're going to, you've got to kind of pay attention um, to make sure that you end up in the right place. So you, you kind of switch on the lantern mode. You're paying attention to everything, to every landmark. But then when you make the return journey, you're already familiar with it because you've done it before. So you can be more in kind of spotlight mode. And then it's at the end of the journey, when you sort of, you know, you get back home, then you think to yourself, the outward journey seemed to last much longer than the return journey. So it is, it's a kind of retrospective judgment. I have a final question, which is sort of a personal question, I guess. We've talked about how the B theory of time goes against the way that most people think they experience time. Most people are A theorists, but their commitment isn't just theoretical. They they don't just have some intellectual apprehension of a dynamic past, present and future that flows like a river. They believe they have a direct experience of that flow. And I wonder if it's the same for you as a B-theory proponent. You believe that time is not dynamic, but do you actually experience time in that way? And if so, what's that like? Are there there ways in which your understanding of time affects your outlook on life, your plans, your mood, maybe, the the way you go about things? Yeah, so I do, um, I say to my students, I don't have any intuitions about time. I've, I've thought about this stuff for too, too many years that I've lost all my intuitions. So I have to ask them what their intuitions are. Um, one thing I do find when you first present the B-theory to students, they often think that it sort of, it entails some kind of fatalism or entails some kind of tension with free will. I don't think that's the case. I think there are ways to get around that. Um, I think that knowing that your future is real doesn't 
require you to think that your future can only turn out one way. It, the way it will turn out depends on the actions you take. So it's compatible with a kind of compatibilist account of free will. Um, and I think that's really important. So I think that every moment, every decision I make is going to have an impact on my future, on my children's futures, on everyone's futures. And so I think that accepting the reality of the future gives us a kind of greater responsibility to make the right choices. And also, given the fact that your temporal extent, <laughs> that um, the extent of your life is what it is, so that, again, that gives us a kind of greater um, responsibility to make the most of it, you know, to, you know, live well. And Heather Dyke is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Otago in New Zealand. More info on the Philosopher's Zone website and more Philosopher's Zone episodes, including this episode, for streaming or download on the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks so much for joining me this week, and I hope we can get together again next time. Bye for now.